0: All right, so as Joe said, I'm Darcy Bissett. I'm an elder here at New Hope. Um, And I'm just going to warn you in advance that we're working a little bit in reverse today. So first, we're going to go straight into the passage and talk about that. And uh, it's a doozy. And uh, then I'm going to tell you like relatable anecdotes, hopefully, about my life. So if you don't know me yet, and you're kind of trying to place me, figure out who I am, just be patient. We'll get there. Okay. So today's passage is Mark 13, 9 through 13. Mark is one of the Gospels, the four books at the beginning of the New Testament that each tell a version of Jesus' life story on earth. Um, And chapter 13, you may have noticed, is not at the beginning. This is not a baby Jesus story. He's all grown up and walking and talking and everything. In fact, we're almost at the end here. This is a discussion Jesus is having with a few of his closest friends in the last week before he dies. Um, And Jesus and these friends have spent a few years traveling around together, different towns and villages, talking, um, you know, to people and Jesus preaching. But this is the week that they enter Jerusalem, right, the big city. Um, And the chapter starts when they pass the temple. And uh, that's the biggest, fanciest building in the biggest, fanciest city that his disciples have seen. And one of the disciples says, wow, that looks sturdy. And Jesus says something like, eh, want to bet? The disciples want more detail, and that's about where we pick up. We're going to start a little bit early in verse 5 if you're following along. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pangs. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, I am aware that this passage has been used as a first draft plot summary for more than one apocalypse-themed scare movie. But the end of the world is probably not the end Jesus is talking about here. It's much more likely that Jesus was actually answering the question he was asked at the beginning of the chapter, What do you mean the temple's going to be destroyed when? And this makes even more sense because we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, right? So about 35, 40 years after Jesus and his disciples are having this conversation. Um, And we also know that the other signs Jesus mentions are things that first and second generation Christians really did experience in that general time frame. They really were hauled into court quite often. People really did hate them. And there were false prophets, a whole bunch of them. There was political upheaval and confusion, and families were torn apart. These were not great times. It's Never great times, but these were really not great times. And that was probably Jesus' point, right? He was about to leave. We're, We're in... We're in Holy Week here. Um, So he's about to do this whole death, resurrection, game-changing thing. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades, right? And then he was going to ascend into heaven and leave his followers to spread the word, this good news, in a world that still seemed pretty broken. They might not have known to expect that, Right? It could have been that Jesus goes up into heaven and they think, wait a minute, maybe we got this wrong because this does not look fixed. So the goal here probably wasn't to scare the followers, like, ooh, look out, um, but just to warn them. You must be on your guard really meant you must be on your guard. Here are some of the things that may be happening to you. N.T. Wright points out that this was Jesus' style generally, warnings and promises together. Things are going to get bad. It's not your burden to hold or to fix. And at the end of it all, I've got you. You'll notice that Jesus did not promise safety. He told them, when you go to trial, don't worry, because the Holy Spirit will speak for you. He didn't promise how well that would turn out. Right? And again, because this was their future, but it's our history, we know that it didn't always turn out well. Right? Some of these stories involved lions, not the vegetarian kind. (laughs) The danger will be real, and the heartbreak will be real, and the confusion will be really confusing. Jesus is warning his friends that when bad, dark times come, it doesn't mean the plan has failed. It just means that the plan is not pain free. So, why are we talking about this at Christmas time? Okay, it's a trick question. It's not Christmas time. What time is it? There we go, it's Advent. So, I'm going to borrow a metaphor from our senior pastor, Jason, here. Um, if we think about the church year as an orbit, Right. If we if we put like, this is the Jesus story, right? And our church year calendar is a way for us to walk a full circle around that story and see it from every angle. Right. So we start at Advent and we practice the wait. We spend four weeks saying, "Oh, we need we need God to break into this world." And then we do Christmas and we celebrate He did. Um, and then you know and then. We sort of learn about his ministry, and then we move into Lent, where where we, we go through sort of the realization of our need for a Savior, of the pain that Jesus went through, of the suffering. And then we get to Holy Week. We do Good Friday, and we remember the cross. And then we get to Easter, and we remember the resurrection. And we go through this whole cycle every year to take time, not to just pick our favorite Jesus and see him, but to force us through the whole circle of the story. Now, why do we do Advent in December? Anyone? Yes. Right, because of the solstice. Now, admittedly, this is totally Eurocentric. I do realize how the sun works and the planet and that none of this applies uh, in the southern hemisphere. But Europe picked the calendar, so (laughs) this is how it works. Solstice is the darkest day of the year, right? And that's basically Christmas. Actually, December 25th was when the Roman calendar sort of observed solstice, so when December 25th was chosen at Christmas, they they put it on the winter solstice. Because there's a long tradition a- across lots of different cultures that at winter solstice you have some kind of celebration about the power of light and light breaking into darkness. So it makes sense that in setting up the church calendar, we have this period of waiting expectantly for Jesus during the period as things are getting darker and darker and darker. As it's getting worse and worse and worse. We spend those four dark, cold, clearly I'm a summer person, weeks thinking it's going to end. Light is coming. Light is coming light is coming right and then christmas is that really short day when we say okay it doesn't feel like it yet but but we know it's shifted we know that the shift is coming we know that the light is on its way it's a dark time dark on purpose dark because dark shows the power of light if I had to sum up Advent, all of the Advent metaphors, in one sentence, it would be something like, man, I really, really, really need a candle. Now, the holiday season, Christmas in like the general American cultural context, says something really different. The holiday season in the class party, getting together with all your cousins, watching 25 different free-form movies kind of way, is a month-long celebration of warmth, coziness, community, generosity, delight, and sugar, and glitter, and the highest of 21st century virtues, focusing on the positive. I love all of those things. And I think they're all worth celebrating. They're good things. I'm a big fan of the whole holiday shebang. In our house, we have the jammies, we have the dishes, we have all the movies. We've already watched most of them since Thanksgiving. And we even have this guy. (laughs) He's been well loved. We'll see if he can stand. Mm, He might need a little help. Come on, buddy. You can do it. Oh, man. He's going to sit, I think. What do you think? I'll hold him. Okay. No, that's going to be long. You don't really want to do that. that. Yeah. Well, he was just going to hang out for the rest of the. He's going to (laughs) sit. All right. There's Buddy. There you go. So that's right, I will take your elf on the shelf and I will raise you five and a half additional feet of holiday festivity. So I'm not here to knock the holiday hoopla and I'm not telling you to opt out of it. I'm not going to. But I am asking you to recognize that these two things that are happening simultaneously are saying different things, right? If I tried to sum up all of the general Christmas holiday metaphors in one sentence. It might be something like, you guys, I have so many lights. You're not even going to believe all these lights. You you just have to feel happy amongst all of these lights. There's nothing to see here except all the lights, which are a metaphor for my feelings, which are happy. The holidays are pretty loud. Sometimes I worry that they're going to crowd out Advent. And I think that because when I picture what it means to develop habits around church calendar kinds of holidays and seasons, my mind jumps to like a warm, quiet room with a flickering candle and some kind of brain transplant that turns me into the kind of unflustered person who can sit in the same place for 30 minutes without having to pee, or remembering that I have laundry mildewing in my washer from last night. Or at least I assume some sort of alternative life in which no one has after-school activities, dinner is always cooking on time in some other room without my assistance, and I never have evening work deadlines. Also, everyone in my house has a great attitude 100% of the time. Okay, guys, we're going to talk about Jesus now. Great, I'd love to right? And because I think of these traditions as playing out in a reality that is not my reality, it becomes really easy to tell myself that they're not realistic. Work ran late, I hit traffic, I don't have a dinner plan, one kid has a project due, another one has dance class, and another one might have colored on her sheets again with permanent marker. So I guess tonight is just a night that Advent isn't going to happen. What can you do? Life gets in the way. As is usually the case, I'm realizing that I have it backwards. Habits of faith, spiritual disciplines, if you want to get fancy, seem like they should involve a new candle, or a new book, or a different schedule. And sometimes they do. I'm not knocking the 30 minutes of silence in the warm room. You can learn great things there. But the best, or at least most underappreciated tool, that God gives me for building and practicing habits of faith is whatever life situation is actually right in front of me. I can fold laundry in bitterness while thinking about how it's keeping me from reading that new book about servant leadership. Or I can fold laundry like Jesus washed feet. So I'm going to give you two Advent habits today, and the good news is that you do not need a whole different life to practice them. You can do them on a school bus, in a cubicle, or in a doctor's office. You don't need paper or silence, and you definitely don't need a brain transplant. All right, so everyone ready? This is the part, if you're under the age of 14 and headed to pizza with the pastor, that you're supposed to write down in your sermon notes. Habit number one, acknowledge the darkness. It's okay. There's space for it here. And it's not just okay, it's good. It's necessary. We need to acknowledge the darkness because it's real. Listen, I'm all for gratitude lists and choosing joy and learning to be content in all circumstances. Content, not delusional. This is not a self-help seminar. And I am not here to tell you that if we just ignore the bad stuff and focus on the positive and dream big and have enough love in our hearts, we can just make a world full of sunshine and bliss. It doesn't work that way. You can do all of those things and still get cancer. Some of you might have read this book this fall. Uh, It's by Eugene Peterson, Leap Over a Wall. It's about David. Some of us read it as we were going through the David series we just ended. And he says this pain isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. The worst thing is trivializing the honorable, desecrating the sacred. Acknowledge the darkness. We are broken people on a broken earth, and there is stuff happening here that we know in our bones just isn't right. That was Jesus' warning to his friends in our passage this week, right? I'm going to leave in victory, but there's still going to be famine and unjust government and broken relationships and all the emotional devastation that comes with that. Jesus calls these birth pangs. The thing about birth pangs is they hurt so much it feels like something is wrong, but it isn't. These are things that are painful and scary, but also expected. We need to acknowledge the darkness in the world. A few weeks ago, there was a spate of articles about an 11-year-old Afghani boy living in a refugee camp in Europe. He was left alone to care for his six younger siblings in refugee camp conditions. He killed himself. Lord have mercy. In August, 58 people died and 546 were injured when some poker player leaned out a high-rise window and just started shooting at a crowd for 20 minutes. And we still don't have a motive other than weird sleep habits A losing streak? This is a reason to shoot 600 strangers now. Hurricane season brought unprecedented devastation to Houston, Puerto Rico, and the Caribbean in general. Syrian civilians are eating trash. North Korea seems to be constantly one insult away from starting nuclear war, and maybe so are we. And apparently the measles are back. There's darkness here in our world. Acknowledge the darkness in your life, your family, your community, your day to day. Holidays are a good time for this one because all that pressure to sit around a big dining room table with everyone kind of highlights the fault lines. This summer, my husband Dave and I took our kids to the beach for two weeks. It was awesome. We spent one week with a big three generation group of people that at the beach where I grew up going in the summer, and then we spent a week with a big three generation group of people that Dave spent the summer uh, vacationing with when he was a kid. And we love all of these people. It was sunshine and sand and ice cream and giggles and old traditions and new babies. And I have like 900 pictures to prove what a great time we had. Also, in each group, my childhood people and Dave's childhood people, this summer we were marked by recent divorce. And there was hurt and loss and pain threaded all through those two weeks. You can forget it sometimes, and we did, because we had a great time, but it was there. You could feel it. There was joy, and it was good, but there was darkness, too. For some of us, Christmas is hard because someone is missing. A parent who died too soon, a sibling who dropped off the map, the, the tight circle of group-texting friends that never materialized, the spouse or kids you thought you would have by now, For some of us, the guest list is right, but maybe something else is wrong. A Pinterest board full of decorating and cooking ideas and an empty checkbook with which to pull it off. A chronic health problem that just makes everything hard. Maybe this Christmas marks another year that you are in the wrong city, the wrong job, the wrong home, the wrong relationship, and you swore you'd be out by now. Acknowledge the darkness in us. I told you all that I love the whole holiday hoopla, and and I swear I do. But Dave, who lives with me and is not easily fooled, uh, likes to point out that maybe I don't actually as much as I think. Christmas kind of brings out the worst in me, to be honest. I try really hard to fight it or at least mask it, but I am shallow, and I am competitive. And as a woman running a household that involves small children, I get this idea at Christmas time that Christmas is some sort of contest that can be won. And I want to win. (laughs) Striving to win a contest that doesn't exist and thus is unwinnable doesn't make me particularly kind or patient during the month of December. If there were video cameras recording the discussions Will and I have had about whether or not he's going to wear the dumb sweater that I chose for him, I wouldn't look great. I try not to let shallow, competitive thoughts get too much of a foothold in my brain, but they pop in. And before I send them away, I have to acknowledge that they're there. Because there's darkness in me. Because I'm broken. Because I need Jesus. I really need Jesus. Maybe there's darkness in you that shows up this time of year. Insecurity that creeps in and has you totaling and comparing gifts to make sure that your friends like you as much as you like them. Envy that turns wish list writing into a meditation of everything about your life that isn't good enough. Maybe you aren't into the whole holiday thing at all, and you are super proud of yourself about that right now, and you are looking down your nose at the rest of us. There's a darkness in that, too. Now, some of you are prone to melancholy. This part is easy for you. You aren't even listening to me anymore because you are on number 120 in your mental list of things that are the worst. I'm going to need you back here right now. Acknowledge the darkness, but don't drown in it. You are not intended to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You aren't even intended to carry the weight of you on your shoulders. Habit number two. This is when you write again. Wait with expectation. Or put differently, just tell Jesus to hurry. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever been a child. Okay. Think back to a time when you were in a room by yourself and something went wrong. Something started spilling or tipping or cracking or smoking or bleeding. What's the first word out of your mouth? Mom? Maybe it goes to something a little bit like Mom? Mom? Mom! Mom, I need you! Right? Usually by like four. That's when mom's like, all right, I'll put the thing down. I'm coming. Pray that way. Don't just like ask God for help. Don't just say like, hey, Jesus, that cosmic reconciliation job you're working on, if you could keep that rolling, I need it to be happening, please bring all of the hurt and the fear and channel it into a prayer that sounds something like, Jesus, I need you. When a kid is, say, dangling face first off of a top bunk, the cry is helpless and desperate and honest and scared. But it's also absolutely hopeful. Mom's going to come, right? The kid knows he's not going to die of starvation dangling from the top bunk. He might have a bruise, and he might not have bunk beds anymore, but his story isn't going to end that day. We can be desperate and scared and confident all at once. That's faith, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't. Faith means we don't have to hide from or ignore the darkness. We can face it. We can feel the wrongness of it. We can admit the heartbreak of it. And then we turn to God, equal parts, desperate and hopeful. I need you. So we don't have to and we don't get to sweep the bad stuff under the rug. It's part of the real story. We acknowledge the darkness because we believe the promise that it isn't going to last, that God is working out a full restoration of what is broken, that the plan is in process, that there will be pain in the journey, but at the end of the day, love wins. Jesus is coming, guys. And it's a good thing, because I really, really, really need a candle. God, we know you came because you love us, because your heart breaks for what is wrong in our world and in us. Help us to see it, to know how desperately we need you. And God, help us to trust in the promise that you are coming. We thank you that we know it's true. In your name.